Section 36 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3, The Great Explorers and Travelers of the Nineteenth Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 3, Part 1. Polar Expeditions, 1. Bellinghausen, yet another Russian explorer. Discovery of the islands of Traversay, Peter I and Alexander I. The whaler Weddell. The southern Orkneys. New Shetland. The people of Tierra del Fuego. John Biscoe and the districts of Enderby and Graham. Charles Wilkes and the Antarctic continent. Captain Bellany. Dumont d'Urville's expedition in the Astrolabe and the Zillay. Coupevent de Bois and the Peak of Tenerife, the Straits of Magellan, a new post office shut in by ice, Louis Philippe's land, across Oceania, Adelie and Clary lands, New Guinea and Torres Strait, return to France, James Clark Rossett, Victoria. We have already had occasion to speak of the Antarctic regions and the explorations made there in the 17th and at the end of the 18th century by various navigators, nearly all Frenchmen, amongst whom we must specially note La Roche, discoverer of New Georgia in 1675, Beauvais, Kerguelen, Marion, and Crozet. The name of Antarctic was given to all the islands scattered about the ocean which are called after navigators, as well as those of Prince Edward, the Sandwich Group, New Georgia, etc. It was in these latitudes that William Smith, commander of the brig William, trading between Montevideo and Valparaiso, discovered in 1818 the southern Shetland Islands, arid and barren districts covered with snow, on which, however, collected vast herds of seals, animals of which the skins are used as furs, and which had not before been met with in the southern seas. The news of this discovery led to a rush of whaling vessels to the new hunting grounds, and between 1821 and 1822 the number of seals captured in this archipelago is estimated at 32,000, whilst the quantity of sea elephant oil obtained during the same time may be put down at 940 tons. As males and females were indiscriminately slaughtered, however, the new fields were soon exhausted. The survey of the twelve principal islands, and of the innumerable and all but barren rocks, making up this archipelago, occupied but a short time. Two years later Botwell discovered the southern Orkneys, and then Palmer and other whalemen sighted, or thought they sighted, districts to which they gave the names of Palmer and Trinity. More important discoveries were, however, to be made in these Hyperborean regions, and the hypothesis of Dalrymple, Buffon, and other scholars of the 18th century, as to the existence of a southern continent, forming, so to speak, a counterpoise to the North Pole, was to be unexpectedly confirmed by the work of these intrepid explorers. The navy of Russia had now for some years been rapidly gaining in importance, and had played no insignificant part in scientific research. We have related the interesting voyages of most Russian circumnavigators, but we have still to speak of Bellinghausen's voyage around the world, 
which occupies a prominent place in the history of the exploration of the Antarctic seas. The Vostok, Captain Bellinghausen, and the Mirny, commanded by Lieutenant Lazarev, left Kronstadt on the 3rd July, 1819, and route for the Antarctic Ocean. On the 15th December, southern Georgia was sighted, and seven days later an island was discovered in the southeast, to which the name of Traverse was given, and the position of which was fixed at 52 degrees 15 minutes south latitude, and 27 degrees 21 minutes west longitude, reckoning from the Paris meridian. Continuing their easterly course in south latitude 60 degrees for 400 miles as far as west longitude 187 degrees, the explorers then bore south to south latitude 70 degrees, where their further progress was arrested by a barrier of ice. Bellinghausen, nothing daunted, tried to cut his way eastwards into the heart of the polar circle, but at 44 degrees east longitude he was compelled to turn northwards. After a voyage of forty miles, a large country hove in sight, which a whaler was to discover twelve years later when the ice had broken up. Back again in south latitude sixty-two degrees, Bellinghausen once more steered eastwards without encountering any obstacles, and on the 5th March, 1820, he made for Port Jackson to repair his vessels. The whole summer was given up by the Russian navigator to a cruise about Oceania, when he discovered no less than seventeen new islands, and on the 31st October he left Port Jackson on a new expedition. The first places sighted on this trip were the Macquarie Islands, then cutting across the 60th parallel, south latitude, in east longitude 160 degrees, the explorers bore east between south latitude 64 degrees and 68 degrees, as far as west longitude 95 degrees. On the 9th January, Bellinghausen reached 70 degrees south latitude, and the next day discovered, in south latitude 69 degrees 30 minutes, west longitude 92 degrees 20 minutes, an island to which he gave the name of Peter I, the most southerly land hitherto visited. Then fifteen degrees further east, and in all but the same latitude, he sighted some more land which he called Alexander I's land. Scarcely two hundred miles distant from Graham's land, it appeared likely to be connected with it, for the sea between the two districts was constantly discolored, and many other facts pointed to the same conclusion. From Alexander I's land, the two vessels, bearing due north and passing Graham's land, made for New Georgia, arriving there in February. Thence they returned to Kronstadt, the port of which they entered in July 1821, exactly two years after they left it, having lost only three men out of a crew of two hundred. We would gladly have given further details of this interesting expedition, but we have not been able to obtain a sight of the original document published in Russian at St. Petersburg, and we have had to be content with the resume brought out in one of the journals of the Geographical Society in 1839. At the same period, a master of the Royal Navy, James Weddell by name, was appointed by an Edinburgh firm to the command of an expedition to obtain sealskins in the southern seas, where two years were to be spent. 
This expedition consisted of the brig Jane, 160 tons, Captain Weddell, and the cutter Beaufort, 65 tons, Matthew Brisbane commander. The two vessels left England on the 17th September, 1822, touched at Bonavista, one of the Cape Verde Islands, and cast anchor in the following December in the port of St. Helena, on the eastern coast of Patagonia, where some valuable observations were taken on the position of that town. Weddell put to sea again on the 27th December, and steering in a southeasterly direction, came in sight, on the 12th January, of an archipelago to which he gave the name of the Southern Orkneys. These islands are situated in south latitude 60 degrees 45 minutes, and west longitude 45 degrees. According to the navigator, this little group presents an even more forbidding appearance than New Shetland. On every side rise the sharp points of rocks, bare of vegetation, round which surge the restless waves, and against which dash enormous floating icebergs, with a noise like thunder. Vessels are in perpetual danger in these latitudes, and the eleven days passed under sail by Weddell, in surveying minutely the islands, islets, and rocks of this archipelago, were a time of ceaseless exertion for the crew, who were throughout in constant danger of their lives. Specimens of the principal strata of these islands were collected, and on the return home put into the hands of Professor Jameson of Edinburgh, who identified them as belonging to primary and volcanic rocks. Weddell now made for the south, crossed the Antarctic Circle in west longitude 30 degrees, and soon came in sight of numerous ice islands. Beyond south latitude 70 degrees, these flows decreased in number, and finally disappeared. The weather moderated, innumerable flocks of birds hovered above the ships, whilst large schools of whales played in its wake. This strange and unexpected change in the temperature surprised every one, especially as it became more marked as the South Pole was more nearly approached. Everything pointed to the existence of a continent not far off. Nothing was, however, discovered. On the 12th February, the vessels were in south latitude 74 degrees 15 minutes, and west longitude 34 degrees 16 minutes 45 seconds. I would willingly, says Weddell, have explored the southwest quarter, but taking into consideration the lateness of the season, and that we had to pass homeward through 1,000 miles of sea strewed with ice islands, with long nights, and probably attended with fogs, I could not determine otherwise than to take advantage of this favorable wind for returning. Having seen no sign of land in this direction, and a strong southerly wind blowing at the time, Weddell retraced his course as far as south latitude 58 degrees, and steered in an easterly direction to within 100 miles of the Sandwich Islands. On the 7th February he once more doubled the southern cape, sailed by a sheet of ice fifty miles wide, and on the 20th February reached south latitude 74 degrees 15 minutes. From the top of the masts nothing was to be seen but an open sea with a few floating ice islands. Unexpected results had ensued from these trips in a southerly direction. Weddell had penetrated 240 miles nearer the pole than any of his predecessors, including Cook. 
he gave the name of George IV to that part of the Antarctic Ocean which he had explored. Strange and significant was the fact that the ice had decreased in quantity as the South Pole was approached, whilst fogs and storms were incessant, and the atmosphere was always heavily charged with moisture, and the temperature of surprising mildness. Another valuable observation made was that the vibrations of the compass were as slow in these southern latitudes as Perry had noted them to be in the Arctic regions. Weddell's two vessels, separated in a storm, met again in New Georgia after a perilous voyage of twelve hundred miles amongst the ice. New Georgia, discovered by La Roche in 1675, and visited in 1756 by the Lion, was really little known until after Captain Cook's exploration of it, but his account of the number of seals and walruses frequenting it had led to being much favoured by whalers, chiefly English and American, who took the skins of their victims to China and sold them at a guinea or thirty shillings each. The island, says Weddell, speaking of South Georgia, is about ninety-six miles long, and its mean breadth about ten. It is so indented with bays, that in several places, where they are on opposite sides, they are so deep as to make the distance from one side to the other very small. The tops of the mountains are lofty, and perpetually covered with snow, but in the valleys, during the summer season, vegetation is rather abundant. Almost the only natural production of the soil is a strong-bladed grass, the length of which is in general about two feet. It grows in tufts on mounds three or four feet from the ground. No land quadrupeds are found here. Birds and amphibious animals are the only inhabitants. Here congregate numerous flocks of penguins, which stalk about on the beach, head in air. To quote an early navigator, Sir John Nasborough, they look like children in white aprons. Numerous albatrosses are also met with here, some of them measuring seventeen feet from tip to tip of their wings. When these birds are stripped of their plumage, their weight is reduced one half. Weddell also visited New Shetland, and ascertained that Bridgman Island, in that group, is an active volcano. He could not land, as all the harbors were blocked up with ice, and he was obliged to make for Tierra del Fuego. During a stay of two months here, Weddell collected some valuable information on the advantages of this coast to navigators, and obtained some accurate data as to the character of the inhabitants. In the interior of Tierra del Fuego rose a few mountains, always covered with snow, the loftiest of which were not more than three thousand feet high. Weddell was unable to identify the volcano noticed by other travellers, including Basil Hall in 1822, but he picked up a good deal of lava which had probably come from it. There was, moreover, no doubt of its existence, for the explorer under notice had seen on his previous voyage signs of a volcanic eruption in the extreme redness of the sky above Tierra del Fuego. Hitherto there had been a good deal of divergence in the opinion of explorers as to the temperature of Tierra del Fuego. Weddell attributes this to the different seasons of their visits, and the variability of the winds. When he was there, and the wind was in the south, the thermometer was never more than two or three degrees above zero 
whereas when the wind came from the north it was as hot as july in england according to weddell dogs and otters are the only quadrupeds of the country the relations with the natives were cordial throughout the explorers stay amongst them at first they gathered about the ship without venturing to climb on to it and the scenes enacted on the passage of the first european vessel through the states were repeated in spite of the long period which had since elapsed of the bread madeira and beef offered to them the natives would taste nothing but the meat and of the many objects shown to them they liked pieces of iron and looking-glasses best amusing themselves with making grimaces in the latter of such absurdity as to keep the crew in fits of laughter their general appearance too was very provocative of mirth their jet-black complexions blue feathers and faces streaked with parallel red and white lines like tick made up a whole of the greatest absurdity and many were the hearty laughs the english enjoyed at their expense presently disgusted at receiving nothing more than the iron hoops of casks from people possessed of such wealth they proceeded to annex all they could lay hands on these thefts were soon detected and put a stop to but they gave rise to many an amusing scene and proved the wonderful imitative powers of the natives a sailor had given a fuegan says weddell a tin pot full of coffee which he drank and was using all his art to steal the pot the sailor however recollecting after a while that the pot had not been returned applied for it but whatever words he made use of were always repeated in imitation by the fuegan at length he became enraged at hearing his requests reiterated and placing himself in a threatening attitude in an angry tone he said you copper-coloured rascal where is my tin pot the fuegan assuming the same attitude with his eyes fixed on the sailor called out you copper-coloured rascal where is my tin pot the imitation was so perfect that every one laughed except the sailor who proceeded to search him and under his arm he found the article missing the sterile mountainous districts in this rigorous climate of tierra del fuego furnish no animal fit for food and without proper clothing or nourishment the people are reduced to a state of complete barbarism hunting yields them hardly any game fishing is almost equally unproductive of results they are obliged to depend upon the storms which now and then fling up some huge cetacean on their shores and upon such salvage they fall tooth and nail not even taking the trouble to cook the flesh in 1828 henry foster commanding the chanticleer received instructions to make observations on the pendulum with a view to determining the figure of the earth this expedition extended over three years and was then that is in 1831 brought to an end by his violent death by drowning in the river chagres we allude to this trip because it resulted on the fifth january 1829 in the identification and exploration of the southern shetlands the commander himself succeeded in landing though with great difficulty on one of these islands where he collected some specimens of the cyanite of which the soil is composed and a small quantity of red snow in every respect similar to that found by explorers in the arctic regions of far greater interest however 
was the survey made in 1830 by the whaler John Biscoe. The brig Tula, 140 tons, and the cutter Lively, left London under his orders on the 14th July, 1830. These two vessels, the property of Messrs. Enderby, were fitted up for whale-fishing, and were in every respect well qualified for the long and arduous task before them, which, according to Biscoe's instructions, was to combine discovery in the Antarctic seas with whaling. After touching at the Falklands, the ships started on the 27th November on a vain search for the Aurora Islands, after which they made for the Sandwich Group, doubling its most southerly cape on the 1st January, 1831. In 59 degrees south latitude, masses of ice were encountered, compelling the explorers to give up the southwestern route, in which direction they had noted signs of the existence of land. It was therefore necessary to bear east, skirting along the ice as far as west longitude 9 degrees 34 minutes. It was only on the 16th January that Biscoe was able to cross the 60th parallel of south latitude. In 1775, Cook had here come to a space of open sea 250 miles in extent, yet now an insurmountable barrier of ice checked Biscoe's advance. Continuing his southwesterly course as far as 68 degrees 51 minutes and 10 degrees east longitude, the explorer was struck by the discoloration of the water, the presence of several eaglets and cape pigeons, and the fact that the wind now blew from the south-southwest, all sure tokens of a large continent being near. Ice, however, again barred his progress southwards, and he had to go on in an easterly direction, approaching nearer and nearer to the Antarctic Circle. At length, on the 27th February, says Deborah Cooley, in south latitude 65 degrees 57 minutes, and east longitude 47 degrees 20 minutes, land was distinctly seen. This land was of considerable extent, mountainous and covered with snow. Biscoe named it Enderby, and made the most strenuous efforts to reach it, but it was so completely surrounded with ice that he could not succeed. Whilst these attempts were being made, a gale of wind separated the two vessels, and drove them in a south-easterly direction, the land remaining in sight and stretching away from east to west to an extent of more than two hundred miles. Bad weather, and the deplorable state of the health of the crew, compelled Biscoe to make for Van Diemen's Land, where he was not rejoined by the lively until some months later. The explorers had several opportunities of observing the Aurora Australis, to quote from Biscoe's narrative, or rather the account of his trip drawn up from his log-book and published in the Journal of the Royal Geographical Society. Extraordinarily vivid coruscations of Aurora Australis were seen, at times rolling, says Captain Biscoe, as it were, over our heads, in the form of beautiful columns, then as suddenly changing like the fringe of a curtain, and again shooting across the hemisphere like a serpent frequently appearing not many yards above our heads, and decidedly within our atmosphere. Leaving Van Diemen's Land on the 11th January, 1832, Biscoe and his two vessels resumed their voyage in a southeasterly direction. The constant presence of floating seaweed, and the number of birds of a kind which never venture far from land, 
with the gathering of low and heavy clouds, made Bisco think he was on the eve of some discovery, but storms prevented the completion of his explorations. At last, on the 12th February, in south latitude 64 degrees, 10 minutes, albatrosses, penguins, and whales were seen in large quantities, and on the 15th land was seen in the south a long distance off. The next day this land was ascertained to be a large island, to which the name of Adelaide was given, in honour of the Queen of England. On this island were a number of mountains of conical form, with the base very large. In the ensuing days it was ascertained that this was no solitary island, but one of a chain of islets, forming, so to speak, the outworks of a lofty continent. This continent, stretching away for 250 miles in an east-north-east and west-south-west direction, was called Graham, whilst the name of Bisco was given to the islets in honour of their discoverer. There was no trace either of plants or animals in this country. To make quite sure of the nature of his discovery, Bisco landed on the 21st February, on Graham's land, and determined the position of a lofty mountain, to which he gave the name of William, in south latitude 64 degrees 45 minutes, and west longitude 66 degrees 11 minutes, reckoning from the Paris meridian. To quote from the Journal of the Royal Geographical Society, the place was in a deep bay, in which the water was so still that could any seals have been found, the vessels would have been easily loaded, as they might have been laid alongside the rocks for the purpose. The depth of the water was also considerable, no bottom being found with twenty fathoms of line almost close to the beach, and the sun was so warm that the snow was melted off all the rocks along the water-line, which made it more extraordinary that they should be so utterly deserted. From Graham's land, Bisco made for the southern Shetlands, with which it seemed possible the former might be connected, and after touching at the Falkland Islands, where he lost sight of the lively, he returned to England. As a reward for all he had done, and as an encouragement for the future, Bisco received medals both from the English and French geographical societies. Very animated were the discussions which now took place as to the existence of a southern continent, and the possibility of penetrating beyond the barrier of ice shutting in the adjacent islands. Three powers simultaneously resolved to send out an expedition. France entrusted the command of hers to de Montdurville, England chose James Ross, and the United States, Lieutenant Charles Wilkes. The last named found himself at the head of a small fleet, consisting of the Porpoise, two sloops, the Vincennes and the Peacock, two schooners, the Seagull and the Flying Fish, and a transport ship, the Relief, which was sent on in advance to Rio with a reserve of provisions, whilst the others touched at Madeira and the Cape Verde Islands. From the 24th November, 1838, to the 6th January, 1839, the squadron remained in the Bay of Rio de Janeiro, whence it sailed to the Rio Negro, not arriving at Port Orange, Tierra del Fuego, until the 19th February, 1839. There the expedition divided, the peacock and flying fish making for the point where Cook crossed south latitude 60 degrees, 
and the relief with the naturalists on board penetrating into the straits of magellan by one of the passages southeast of tierra del fuego whilst the vincennes remained at port orange and the seagull and porpoise started on the twenty fourth february for the southern seas wilkes surveyed palmer's island for a distance of thirty miles to a point where it turns in a south-southeast direction which he called cape hope he then visited the shetlands and verified the position of several of the islands in that group after passing thirty-six days in these inhospitable regions the two vessels steered northwards a voyage marked by few incidents worthy of record brought wilkes to callao but he had lost sight of the seagull the commander now visited the palmato group otahite the society and navigators islands and cast anchor off sydney on the twenty ninth november end of section thirty six